3: was a season that saw seeds planted by a legend bloom on the biggest stage possible.
0: I still think of 2004 as part of the healing from 2001.
3: This has got to be the greatest day of my life. A season that brought out the best. We're right in the middle of this championship so we'll just see what happens at Homestead. And the worst. And now they're tackling one another and a fight is on in the pit area. While crowning a champion in the most suspenseful way. We dodged a huge, huge devastating proposition that would have taken us out of this championship. A racing season that was one of the most impactful in the sports history. There's
0: so much going on behind the scenes in 04, but the headlines that made the sport continue, I think will be 25 years from now when we're celebrating the 100th, somebody will look at a a yardstick of our history, and that'll, 2004 is going to be
3: on there. Motor Racing Network welcomes you to NASCAR Live Presents 2004 Chasing History. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Bagley, and welcome to Episode 2 of NASCAR Live Presents 2004 Chasing History. In Episode 1, we chronicled all the change that the sport encountered at the beginning of the year, next replacing Winston as the Cup Series title sponsor, the exit of Pontiac, the introduction of the chase format, and much more, as well as Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s emotional win in the 46th running of the Daytona 500. In this episode... We're going to cover races two through eight of the 2004 season, a stretch that includes the final race at Rockingham, the emergence of Casey Kane, and the final victory of a NASCAR Hall of Famer's career. When we left off with Dale Jr. winning the Daytona 500, NASCAR had a ton of momentum coming off that hugely successful event. The president of the United States, George W. Bush, had given the command to fire engines, and the most popular driver won the race. Everyone hoped that momentum would continue as the series made its annual trip to North Carolina Speedway in Rockingham, North Carolina. The Rock, as it's known, was a unique one-mile track that had a surface so abrasive that tires would have nightmares, just like the entire sport. Rockingham, though, faced change. Entering 2004, the track had its schedule reduced to just one race after hosting two events annually for decades. Goodyear also brought a new, softer tire for the event, meaning that tire wear would be even more in focus for that race. The 400-mile race brought fans everything they'd come to love about Rockingham. Towards the end of the race, 2003 champion Matt Kenseth had taken control of the event, But as he took the white flag, he had a rookie, Casey Kane, and young gun, Jamie McMurray, breathing down his neck. What ensued? Was one of the most thrilling final laps and finishes in NASCAR history.
4: See the white flag, head back to turn number one. Can Casey Kane or Jamie McMurray get by Matt Kenseth?
5: Kenseth up the banking. Casey Kane goes even higher. McMurray will dive to the bottom. Kane looking to the outside. Nothing there as they exit two for the final time. He is on the
6: back bumper looking for room to race at the entrance to turn three. Matt Kenseth slides up the racetrack. Casey Kane cuts it to the bottom. Kane is on the move going for the win at Rockingham.
2: Casey Kane works to the inside lane, pulls even with Matt Kenseth. At the line by inches, it is Matt Kenseth scoring the win in the Subway 400. What a fantastic run for young Casey Kane. Only his second NASCAR Nextel Cup Series run, and he comes up second nearly winning here at the toughest racetrack on the circuit, the North Carolina Speedway.
4: Well, Casey Kane just pulled off the best finish ever for a Revestis rookie here at Rockingham. Tell us about those last few laps, Gacy. Well, I was just, you know, I was doing all I could with this Dodge dealers, UAW Dodge, and I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I could get little runs on, on, uh, thanks, Ray. Uh, I could get little runs on on Kinseth at times, but it was real hard. He was running high, and I was running pretty high. So I just tried to set him up for down here, and you know, I, did, I knew that was my only spot to pass him was down here. So uh, you know, we did what we could, and just about got there. Tell you what, first place we got to start, those last four or five laps. Tell us about them. You had
7: a, had your hands full. Well, it was stressful, and uh, I sure didn't want to give up the race. We, we led it all day and uh, dominated the middle part of the race, and I sure didn't want to be the one to, to face all these guys that are standing here at the end of the race and lose that thing. So I was uh, doing everything I could in He almost got me in one and two uh, one time, and I didn't know whether to protect the bottom or the top. So I tried to protect the middle and get a good run off the corner, not overdrive the corner. And uh, the last lap, I was just, uh, I've been loose off of four, and I got up as high as I could to get a run down off the corner as good as I could. And uh, he got a good charge of me there, and it was a close one.
3: What we didn't know then was that the final mile of the 2004 Subway 400 was the final mile of NASCAR Cup Series racing at Rockingham. It wasn't announced until May of that year that NASCAR would not be returning to North Carolina Motor Speedway, as well as reducing Darlington's schedule to just one race and adding second races at Texas Motor Speedway and Phoenix Raceway. NASCAR President Mike Helton explains the decision to remove Rockingham from the schedule.
0: So the whole industry was going through an evolution, as as they did with uh, car brands, but we were ourselves going through a transition. If you remember, in the mid-'90s, we added Indianapolis. We added New Hampshire. Uh, Miami was coming up out of the ground in Homestead. Roger built the track in California. The Smith family built the track in Texas. And we were given opportunities to expand a sport, but it could only be so big because there was only so many weekends. And then you also follow the ownership change of the racetracks, where most of them were individual, and then they started being two or three, and then all of a sudden they were, they were 10 or 12 per companies, and then a few independents left. So the, the process of making a schedule now has always been heavily influenced by the racetrack themselves, but it was also being influenced by how saturated we may be, as opposed to having an opportunity to be in another marketplace that we historically haven't been. And so all of those business decisions that were made unilaterally with the ownership were made. And it, it took wilkes off when it took wilkes off. It took Rockingham off when it went off.
3: While most in the industry understood the reason for leaving Rockingham from a business perspective, that didn't take away the sting of leaving a facility with so many memories. That was especially true for MRN's Winston Kelly, who had grown up going to races
7: at the Rock with his dad. Well, it's kind of bittersweet because growing up in Concord and going to the track so much, you know, when I went with my dad to the track, I mean, Rockingham was twice a year when he was working races for Universal Racing Network, and then I had gone down there from college with buddies, you know, we'd sit toward turn number one because we loved seeing them come off of turn four, down that little bit of a dog leg, and you could see all the way into the corner of turn number three. You know, we were there in 79 when Donnie and Kale wrecked again after the Daytona 500, so you know we went a lot to Rockingham, and I probably had gone there as much as any track uh, at that particular time. So it's bittersweet, you know. You knew that, you know, with the change in ownership and things like that, and uh, that we were going to be making some changes. Uh, so I understood it, but you know, it, it was nostalgic, you know, going down there for that last time because when I started with MRN. Very first race I ever worked, uh, actually, very first race I ever gophered for, <laughs> was at Rockingham in 1987, and I'd worked it with as a statistician with Universal Racing Networks. So I'd just gone there so much, and even with 492 laps of long racing, you know, it still was just somewhere that I'd always gone. But uh, just things move on.
3: Four-time Rockingham winner Jeff Gordon will also have fond memories of the Rock. It was what he called a driver's track and one of the first tracks he ever got to race at upon moving to North
8: Carolina. we talk about Darlington being unique and different, Rockingham was that same way where one and two you had to slow the car down pretty uh, you know abruptly. If you could keep that car in the bottom lane and hook the bottom, you know give that good launch off of turn two, but then three and four you could kind of run about anywhere and it was really rough as well. so it just had a ton of character to it abrasiveness with, with the track surface and, and tires get worn out. So, setup was super important. Um, you know, how hard you pushed it on new tires and what, how you saved the tires. You know, it, it was a real driver's track and, and yet it had multiple lanes as well. You know, the as we say, the comers and goers, right? It just, you know, you'd have one guy just take off. and You're like, man, he's checked out. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're marching backwards and somebody else is coming forward. So, um, yeah, I just I just thought it was great racing and, and a real challenge. It was one of the first tracks I ever ran on uh, in NASCAR, and, and when I came to North Carolina and, and fell in love with it right away.
3: Following Rockingham on the schedule were back-to-back races at mile and a half racetracks, Las Vegas and Atlanta. At Vegas, Matt Kenseth did exactly what he did the week prior at Rockingham and the year prior at Vegas, and that's win. Matt's winning wasn't the only thing notable about that Las Vegas race, though. That weekend also marked the Cup Series debut for Kyle Bush. It wasn't a race to remember for the younger Bush brother as he crashed out early in the going. But Kyle can look back at that memory now, though, and say with a chuckle it was a learning experience. It was short. I think I pounded the fence at lap thirteen and it was over. Um yeah, that wasn't uh that wasn't so good, but um, you know, just First start, you know, emotions, butterflies, you know, a little bit of nervousness, stuff like that, and just not being in some of those dirty air spots very often in some of the races that I had been running. You know, I've been running ARCA races out front, leading, not being in dirty air, or the cars in in traffic being slower. So, you know, you're with much tougher, stiffer competition. Yeah, it was just a big learning experience for me and the other races that I ran there as well, too. The next week at Atlanta, Dale Earnhardt Jr. joined Kenseth as multiple-time winners in 2004 with the two combining to win the first four races of the season. It was beginning to look like the season would be a battle between Kenseth and Earnhardt Jr. Those two had always been connected to each other, having been in the Xfinity Series at the same time and both entered the Cup Series on a full-time basis in 2000. Now, while Jr. reached greater heights in the Xfinity Series, Matt won their Rookie of the Year battle in 2000 and then was the first of the two to become a Cup Series champion. MRN's Dave Moody remembers the
5: Kenseth Jr. rivalry fondly. I loved it because they were so different. Junior was, in his own way, flamboyant. You know, that was back That was back in the era. Dale Jr. then is different than Dale Jr. now. Dale Jr. back then lived for video games, cold beer, and sleep until noon. I mean, how many times did the first practice go off without Junior because he, he hadn't quite woke up yet and was still kind of shambling his way toward the garage, much to the chagrin of his crew chief? Kenseth was just the opposite, right? He was cool, calm, collected, totally professional, not flamboyant, but methodical and consistent and never opened the door by having a disaster of a day to allow somebody to gain 30 or 40 points on him in, a, in an afternoon. I just thought they were, they were so fascinating together as rivals because they were both ends of the spectrum.
3: Following trips to Las Vegas and Atlanta, it was time to head to a favorite of both drivers and fans alike, Darlington Raceway. That race saw the first winner of the year not named Kenseth or Earnhardt Jr., and it so happened to be a young California driver holding off a former series champion to get his first victory at the Lady in Black. Bobby Labonte has
6: caught Jimmy Johnson. Catching and passing are two different things. Labonte looks low down here in turn number three. Not able to do anything. Johnson!
2: was there for a moment. Has to get out of the gas though. Fall back in line behind Jimmy Johnson who leads yet again. Now two laps to go as they go back to turn one. Jimmy Johnson, Bobby Labonte
6: fighting for the win at Darlington. One car length apart. The low Chevrolet. The interstate battery Chevrolet. Single file. Here comes Labonte with a good head of steam looking for the lead. Bobby Labonte gets a good run. He looks to the inside. Still not able to get up alongside of Jimmy Johnson. Johnson has the advantage by one car length and three. Again Johnson sweeps up the racetrack has nothing for him this
4: time. Heading down the line, white flag is in the air. Jimmy Johnson leads them down. Will he be leading when they come back? Bobby Labonte, two car lengths back as they go to one. Bobby Labonte fighting hard, trying to take the win away. Jimmy Johnson
6: fighting hard, trying to hang on to it. One car length between Jimmy Johnson and Bobby Labonte as they head to the back straightaway for the final time. Bobby Labonte gets a run up onto the back straightaway. Labonte looks low, not able to do anything just yet. Jimmy Johnson has been sliding down here in turn three. Labonte goes up high. pulls a fake, looking low. Labonte follows off turn
2: four. Labonte within a car length, looking for a chance to make a move. Will he be able to do it coming down to the line? No, he will not. And Jimmy Johnson scores his first win at the Darlington Raceway, holding off a hard-charging
7: Bobby Labonte. Bobby Labonte gave you a couple of good, strong runs. Tell us about the almost passes and what you did to hold him off. Yeah, I knew he was coming, and I was a little tighter than I expected on the start of that run.
6: So I I knew that I really kind of needed to protect the high side. If he got inside of me, we're racing hard at the end, and what happens (laughs) after? In a sense. So uh, I just, you know, I tried to just try to keep my momentum up around
3: the top, and he got inside of me a few times, but I had my momentum up and was able to clear him keep going. That was the first of what would be three Darlington victories for the future seven-time Cup Series champion Jimmy Johnson. That win moved Johnson up to sixth in the point standings following five races, joining Dale Earnhardt Jr., Matt Kenseth, and Casey Kane as early season title contenders. The next week at the Bristol Motor Speedway, another contender emerged in Kurt Busch. The victory came as no surprise as Busch won his first career race at Bristol and was already beginning to emerge as a bit of a short track ace in the sport. Kurt, as any driver in NASCAR is, was happy to visit Victory Lane, but admits that he was trying to stay off the radar early that season.
1: Yeah, Bristol was early in the year, uh, one of my favorite racetracks. You know, over the years, I was able to win there six times, and it was just one of those tracks that spoke to me and, If you could get on the bottom of turn four and have that clean exit and pass guys, that was the key back then. But all in all though, I'll still be honest with you, we were trying to stay off the radar. We were trying to lay low. And back then only 10 guys got in the playoffs. And so we we won that race. Yes, now we're a race winner. That didn't mean anything then. You just had to have consistency with your points. And our goal was consistency, stay under the radar, stay out of the news uh, because I I definitely had a a tough 2003 with everything going on and so that was our goal was a team effort on the marketing side the racing side and that was my third fourth full-time year that's when you see a lot of big champions in all of sports find their way because the game slows down or the racing slows down and you're able to digest it all and Jimmy Fenning was definitely the key factor that uh, was the father figure to get me in line.
3: The driver who Bush held off to win that race was the master of Bristol up until that point. And that master is Rusty Wallace. Early in 04, Rusty was trying to end a multi-year winless streak. And though he would race through the end of the 2005 season, plans for his retirement were already beginning to take shape. I knew that probably the beginning of 04, and I talked about
9: it in length to my wife I talked about it at length to Roger Pinski and Roger was all for me hanging it up because he says, so look he said you've accomplished about everything in this sport yeah you haven't won the Daytona 500 I know you want to do that real bad you know but everything else you've done pretty good at you know uh, won a lot of different racetracks he said, I don't want to see you get hurt man I just don't want you to see you get hurt I want you to see you be in the top of your game and uh, you just need to think about it I'm not going to force you to get out of the car but I'm going to if that's the decision you make I think it's the right decision." I said, okay, so I did that, and then probably the one thing that really pushed me over then is then to some of the, when the, some of the TV companies got wind of it, then I got approached by a couple of them, and the last one I got approached by was ESPN, and he said, you know, we're coming back in NASCAR, and they got the deal, and uh, it was going to start in 2007, I, but I'm retiring at the end of 2005. And so I started thinking, of. myself, well, I got an income source here. When I, if I hang it up, then I go to work for television and won't notice a big difference. And so that pretty well made me do it. Now, if, if I wouldn't have had a deal lined up, I'd have probably been pushing to go a couple more years of driving. But I had that pretty well put together. And I knew if I didn't take it, because I had it offered to me, if I didn't take it, then somebody else was going to take it. So that's that's what happened. And uh, I got out of it, And but I t- it took me a long time to get over not driving a race car.
3: While Rusty's career was winding down, Casey Kane's career was only beginning to ramp up. Casey, a rookie for Everham Motorsports, had come up just short of winning in only his second start in that thrilling Rockingham finish. And then again, he finished second to Matt Kenteth at Las Vegas. The first race of April was held at Texas Motor Speedway, and it looked like that it might be Kane's day to break through. He started third, let a race high 148 laps, only to ultimately finish second again this time to Elliott Sadler. And while Casey was struggling to close out races, it was clear he was a star in the making. Dave Moody remembers all of the hype surrounding the Washington
5: native. He was as good as advertised and maybe better. He came in with a lot of hype and a lot of discussion. He followed in the tire tracks of Jeff Gordon. Wait do you see this kid that's just come in off the dirt tracks because he's pretty phenomenal and he could he could hang that right rear out there and he could just feather that throttle and the rear end's twitching all the way through the turns and you're like this kid's never gonna make another lap and he made another and another and another that race also saw kenseth relinquish his hold on the points lead to his teammate kurt bush
3: now let's go back to rusty wallace entering the eighth race of the season his winless streak stood at 105 races and was nearing almost three full calendar years with his last win coming at the California Speedway on April 29, 2001. It was time to head to Martinsville, though, a track where Rusty had already won six times in the past. Given his second-place finish at Bristol a few weeks prior, many thought this could finally be the week. Rusty had stiff competition, though, with drivers like Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. starting up front.
4: Jeff Gordon brings him down out of turn number four, waiting for the green flag. Not yet in line, about 100 feet from the line. Now the green flag goes out, and Jeff Gordon jumps on the throttle, races off to turn number one, goes in there all by himself. Front two run nose to tail.
3: Wallace started 17th that day, but lurked around the top five all afternoon. Now, while he had solid speed, he didn't seem to have race-winning speed of Gordon, Johnson, and Earnhardt Jr., who all led over 100 laps in that race. Rusty, though, was in a position to pounce late in the going when one of the odder scenes in the history of Martinsville Speedway occurred. A pothole developed in Turn 3, and a piece of the track came loose and struck Gordon's car.
4: This race has been red flagged. The field is stopped in the middle of the back straightaway over there. They're taking a look at the bottom of the racetrack where the concrete is uh, down and apparently they have a crack in the concrete maybe or a chunk of it, we understand, might have come up over there. They want to take a look at it and see what they need to do. Make sure this racetrack is safe before they would go back to green. Let's go over to Mike Bagley over there.
6: Yeah, Barney, safety crews and NASCAR officials on the scene now and their attentions are focused on a hole, I'd say about maybe five or six inches wide, maybe uh, square inches that is and 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 basically a little chunk of concrete has come out was sitting in the outside lane but now they basically stuck with a crater down on the inside in this concrete groove and right now they're trying to assess the situation of what they could do it looks like that uh, another piece could come up and that's what they're trying to do to make that as safe as possible for when we do go back under green flag conditions
8: One of the drivers that reported to NASCAR the problem with the track, Jeff, uh, did you receive any damage to the car and how much did it do? Oh yeah, we received a lot of damage, uh I mean, I, I hit it that there's a huge piece of concrete sitting right in the middle of the track. And, um, you know, I just clipped it with the right front fender and we're going to uh, definitely have to do some work to it. We're going to have to come in. We're going to we're going to make it exciting for ourselves and hopefully for these fans because we got an awesome race car. There's no doubt we can we can still come up to the front, but uh, it's going to be uh, a lot of hard work, and a lot of things that are going to have to go our way. Were you able to survey uh, the track coming apart out there? Oh, there's a big hole down there. That's for sure. Uh, They're going to try to, uh, you know, fix it, obviously, uh, or at least patch it for now. And hopefully we'll get back racing. We want everybody to to see a a full 500 lap race here at Martinsville. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, I want every lap to, to work our way. We'll first fix the race car and then work our way back to the front.
3: The race was halted for 77 minutes while the track was repaired. When racing resumed... Wallace proved he was more than just a contender. Wallace took the lead just before the final caution of the race at lap 456 and never looked back. Two laps remaining, and Rusty got to be feeling confident right now. Sliding up
6: off the inside lane of the racetrack. there comes Rusty Wallace onto the back straightaway. Three-car length still the distance between Rusty Wallace and Bobby Labonte as they head off the end of the
4: back stretch. Don't believe Bobby Labonte's got anything for him on this final lap as they come down to see the white flag fly because Bobby would have been up there a lot quicker if he had. Rusty Wallace takes the white flag. Maybe heading for victory lane after a long drought. Let's pick him up in turn two.
6: Race fans are going wild on the backstretch at Martinsville. Rusty Wallace for the final time off the end of the backstretch has a three-car length lead advantage over Bobby Labonte. Rusty Wallace going back to victory lane at Martinsville. In
2: two weeks, it will be three years since he had won that last victory coming at the California Speedway. He goes back to victory lane today at Martinsville Speedway in the Advance Auto Parts 500,
3: scoring win number seven at this famed half-mile track. Rusty Wallace wins, and just like that, the long drought for Rusty Wallace was over. Rusty fully admits that his winless streak played a factor into his retirement discussions, and even with Gordon's misfortune, he was happy to take a victory any way he could get it at that point.
9: It was terrible. It it was like you start questioning your driving ability, and then you start saying, well, you know, I guess hanging it up at the end of 2005 is the right thing. You know, I've kind of lost it a little bit. You know, I don't feel it. I can't feel that I've lost anything. But maybe I have, you know, then I go to Martinsville and the thing just flat flies and Jeff Gordon's leading the race and I'm right on his bumper. We're both just really getting it. And I remember a big old boulder hit him in the nose and messed up the radiator or something. Then I went on to win the race and then I got out and I said, oh, you take him anyway, you can get him. Well,
3: Rusty views that win the final of his 55 career victories, a special one now. The emotions were even higher on that Virginia afternoon, with thousands of fans cheering as he celebrated in Victory
7: Lane. Rusty, when you got out of the car, jumped up on the side of it, you said, finally, tell us about it. Uh, it's just finally. I'm so glad to win again, you know. Man, it's been so long,
9: and we got so close, and the fans have been behind me forever and ever and pulling really hard, and this one's for them, I'll tell you that. We finally got this number two middle light Dodge in Victory Lane like it deserved. We've been really running great. Now, Larry Carter, I want to thank him and my entire Miller Lite race team, entire Penske team. Engine was great, and the brakes really were good. The performance friction stuff with uh, the Brembo stuff was just great today. I just uh, had a great time, and I just, uh, I'm going to go home, have a cold Miller Lite, and think about it. That's, that's pretty cool. That's about time.
3: <laughs> so nearly a quarter of the way through the 2004 NASCAR Cup Series season, we had already seen an Earnhardt go back to victory lane at Daytona, the Defending Series champion show that he might be primed to repeat, a rookie already beginning to blossom into a superstar, and a legend returned to victory lane. Next week on Episode 3, our journey through 2004 continues with a trip to Talladega Super Speedway, the Crown Jewel Coca-Cola 600, and another legend ending a long, winless drought.
4: Here's Mark Martin rolling out of turn number four, heading down to the white flag one more lap around, and he'll be heading to victory lane. Let's grab that battle for second place. Tony Stewart has it. One final chance for Earnhardt Jr. to take the spot away. They go to turn two.
6: Tony Stewart slips up off the inside lane of the racetrack. Here comes Dale Earnhardt Jr. They dive for the bottom, almost make contact. Earnhardt wiggles
2: down the back straightaway for the final time as Mark Martin is off for the checkered flag. Mark Martin on his way to the win. Let's pick up the battle for second. Earnhardt Jr. pulls even with Tony Stewart. They work off turn four. Stewart pulls out in front he'll finish second Earnhardt Jr. finishes in the third spot Jeff Burton finishes fourth Scott Riggs comes in in fifth for Mark Martin his
3: fourth win on the Monster Mile and he breaks a 73 race winless streak until then I'm Mike Bagley for all of us at the Motor Racing Network thank you for joining us on NASCAR Live presents 2004 Chasing History
1: Care to home and auto repair. Do it with Craftsman. Find the tools, equipment, and storage you need at your local Lowe's, Ace Hardware, or Craftsman.com. Kyle Larson
2: brings his Chevy in four times.